A landmark legal case over a devastating war. Israel gets taken to court on charges of genocide in Gaza. Chaos in Guayaquil. Gang violence in Ecuador, live on TV. And tens of thousands killed, millions displaced. Why is the story in Sudan not in the headlines? The International Court of Justice has concluded its preliminary hearing in The Hague on South Africa's genocide case against Israel. The ICJ judges are now deliberating over whether or not they will order an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. For the global media, this case will, or at least should, govern how this story is reported, what kind of terminology should apply. If the UN's highest court suspects Israel of carrying out a genocide, then who are journalists? to say otherwise, by continuing to describe the utter carnage in watered-down terms. Geopolitically, the stakes could not be higher. Because a ruling against South Africa signals to the world that what we have witnessed over these past three months in Gaza, the collective punishment and indiscriminate bombardment of civilians is permissible in the eyes of the ICJ. But a ruling in favor of South Africa will let Israel and its powerful backers know that when it comes to genocide, no one, not even Israel and its American allies, is above the law. This is a potentially pivotal legal case, one laced with historical irony. The government of South Africa, the country that invented apartheid, taking Israel, which still practices apartheid, to the International Court of Justice, accusing it of genocide in Gaza. The first genocide in history, where its victims are broadcasting their own destruction in real time, in the desperate, so far vain hope that the world might do something. South Africa's lawyers chose their words carefully. The challenge facing Israel's lawyers is that since October 7th, Israeli leaders have not. We will exact a price that will be remembered by them and Israel's other enemies for decades to come. The difficulty the Israelis are facing is that every single day there are more and more statements uh, that are uh, genocidal, including the increasing talk about not only the ethnic cleansing of Gazans, but also bringing Jewish settlers in Gaza. We hear about the elimination of the population from Gaza, uh, raising the uh, different cities and towns uh, in, uh, to the ground, and then building on the rubble new settlements that are uh, Jewish. All the genocidal rhetoric that has come out, why was that allowed to be aired, to proliferate? If indeed this was totally out of sync with the intentions of the Israeli state, it behooves you to clamp down on that, that was not done. In fact, something else happened, which is only after Israel realized the International Court of Justice is a serious thing that they will have to contend with. Then you suddenly see the order going around, shh, keep quiet, don't say that stuff anymore. And if you have said that kind of stuff, walk it back. Israel is fighting Hamas terrorists, not the Palestinian population. 
which is what the Netanyahu government was doing right up until the day before the hearing. But all those previous statements, inflammatory ones by Israeli officials, matter. Because as stipulated in the Genocide Convention passed by the UN in 1948, declarations of intent are evidence. It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true, this rhetoric about civilians not, we're not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. So Israel has tried to roll back the clock to October 7th. But I am obliged to put before the court today some small fragment of the scenes of unfathomable cruelty. Showing the ICJ judges some of the same images of Hamas's gruesome attacks that it showed journalists, foreign governments, and the UN. That may have proven effective in the court of public opinion, but it does not constitute a legal defense for what has happened since. Propaganda does not work in a court of law. While Israel will argue to the court that Hamas' attack on uh, uh, Israel on October 7 amounted to genocide of its own sort, regardless of an attack on a state's territory, no matter how atrocious, it does not justify genocide. The fact that Israel has landed at the ICJ in The Hague by way of South Africa has to do with two countries with similar histories and shared experiences of oppression. We are also particularly mindful of Israel's institutionalized regime of discriminatory laws, subjecting the Palestinian people to apartheid. Apartheid-era South Africa and Israel were both highly militarized countries with societies that were racially segregated. Both were political pariahs, isolated by their neighbors. Israel needed oil. South Africa provided it. South Africa, faced with an arms embargo, needed weapons. Israel helped supply them. The respective resistance groups, the ANC and the PLO, forged an alliance of their own. Given that history, ANC leaders have always backed the Palestinians, as Nelson Mandela did from the moment he came out of prison, such as in this encounter with the U.S. network ABC in 1990. You've met over the last six months three times with Yasser Arafat. Are these your models of leaders of human rights? One of the mistakes which some political analysts make is to think that their enemies should be our enemies. From the get-go in this current uh, situation in Gaza, South Africa has been completely pro-Palestinian. Now, there's a moral claim that the ANC and the South African government sees the Gazans and the Palestinians more generally as being part of the oppressed uh, group of people in the world. They're involved in a struggle against colonialism, and therefore, to some extent, it's seen through the same lens as the struggle against apartheid. The ANC's support for the people of Palestine did not start and end with former President Nelson Mandela. That solidarity and support continued under the era of Tabumbeki, under the era of former President Jacob Zuma, and we see it unfold um, under the presidency of Cyril Ramaphosa. South Africa has historically uh, stated that Israel is forced resettlements, its um, mass incarceration of Palestinian people is reminiscent of the apartheid regime in South Africa. From a more cynical point of view, uh, we're going into an election year in South Africa in the next few months. 
and the ANC is determined to deflect and distract attention from its multiple domestic failures, this ICJ case is an opportunity for South Africa to reclaim the moral high ground. And so I think there's a combination of struggle history, deep cynicism, and to a degree opportunism behind the South African case. If the judges rule against Israel and order its bombing of Gaza to stop while the court determines if this war is in fact genocidal, the legal implications would apply not just to the Netanyahu government, but to all countries that are signatories to the UN's Genocide Convention for failing in their legal duty to prevent that genocide. Moreover, media outlets everywhere would be robbed of any excuse they have conjured up to avoid calling this story what it is, instead of labeling it the way humanitarian groups and various NGOs have, as a genocide in progress, they have minced their words, resorted to euphemisms and mischaracterizations that reflect the language of their governments, not the reality on the ground. This is a genocide happening in front of our eyes. We have, yeah, we, th that word, as, as you know, incredibly emotive, and the Israelis, as you know, will be saying that they are targeting Hamas only, that they don't target... Will South Africa's case against Israel have a game-changing effect on the news narrative? Because it could use one. Should the International Court of Justice rule uh, that there is a risk of genocide, this will also put on notice and to shame all of those who have supported uncritically the war in the last three months, whether it's states like the US, the EU, or the media in the West that have been promoting, supporting, aiding and abetting genocide in Gaza. So hopefully this kind of ruling would prompt a critical self-reflection on the part of the Western media, as well as a change of course on the part of uh, Western governments. A lot of the media coverage has been through the lens of retaliation, that Israel was acting in self-defense to what happened on October 7. But if the ICJ makes a finding that Israel is now a suspect in a genocide case, it changes that lens and it changes the narrative and that shifts things geopolitically in many ways. It's just worth stepping back for a moment and not giving a free pass to the Israeli media. You have literally had people sitting in TV studios as expert analysts and commentators saying, I think we should have killed 100,000 in the first few days. And I remember Rwanda and the way actually the media played that role. And they were gone after as well. So the media is not on trial in the court, but we shouldn't give them a free pass either. 20 countries have now stepped up to back South Africa, putting their names to the case against Israel. Not one of them is from the West. For all their talk of Western values, all their moralizing, not a single so-called leader in North America or Europe has supported what analysts agree is the best chance to secure a ceasefire to save Palestinian lives. History will judge them accordingly. Come the time, those writing their obituaries should do the same.
Ecuador has been in a state of emergency for the past week as the government there battles an epidemic of drug gang violence. One of the most shocking scenes came from a TV station that was stormed by gunmen. Tarek Nafa is here with more. Richard, what viewers of Ecuador's TC Televisión saw on Tuesday was like something out of a narco thriller. Masked gang members breaking into the studio in the middle of a news broadcast, armed with guns and explosives, firing at journalists and taking hostages. The police put an end to the attack before it went any further, but the break-in was only the most visible case in this latest escalation of gang violence in Ecuador. It began last Sunday when one of the country's most notorious gang leaders escaped from his jail cell, triggering uprisings in multiple Ecuadorian prisons where guards were held hostage and reportedly even murdered by prisoners. Since then, gang violence has killed at least 10 people. The country's newly elected president, Daniel Noboa, has declared a 60-day state of emergency, saying that the country is fighting narco-terrorism. And a tough stance on criminal gangs was a core piece of Noboa's election platform, but it's been an uphill struggle. Earlier on in the campaign, Noboa's opponent was assassinated just days after pledging a war on criminal gangs. And as the attack on TC Television made clear, media outlets covering this story are also targets. Death threats against journalists are common, and several broadcasters have been sent explosive devices. That has intimidated many reporters into silence on this story. Thanks, Tarek. Moving on now to Sudan, where the civil war and resulting humanitarian crisis continue unabated and largely underreported. News audiences may remember the images from the capital city, Khartoum, from April of last year, when fighting erupted between two factions of Sudan's military junta. Since then, this conflict has engulfed most of the country, claiming more than 10,000 lives, displacing an estimated 7 million Sudanese. The international media, however, are no longer paying close attention, a lack of interest that began long before what happened on October 7th. Getting this story out to the world are Sudanese journalists inside the country and abroad. People like Ismail Kushkush, a Sudanese-American writer who left Khartoum just as the war broke out, and Yasmin Abdelmajid, an author, broadcaster and editor at the website Eyes on Sudan. The Listening Post spoke with both of them on Sudan's year of crisis and why the news media have failed to convey the scale of this story. So, do you feel like the story of Sudan has been forgotten? Hmm. The story of Sudan, looking back from the end of 2023, is one that I find really dispiriting, actually. The Khartoum that I left, that I last saw in 2020, will never exist again. Not only are we dealing as Sudanese people with this, with the weight of the country collapsing, but it's also having to deal with it in relative silence, in an international media context where there are other wars that people are paying more attention to. And it feels like the Sudanese people are mourning and grieving alone. Seven million people have been displaced. Over a million people are now refugees in neighboring countries. The amount of death uh, that has been recorded uh, according to UN numbers um, at least 10,000, probably higher. So I think we, we do have one of the largest 
um, catastrophes of, of last year still unfolding and still uh, ongoing. This time five years ago, we were witnessing the beginning of protests that would hail the end of the Bashir regime. Reports say that Sudan's military has forced President Omar al-Bashir to step down, ending 30 years of rule. And there was this real period of excitement. It felt like, ah, finally, we were going to be known for something apart from a genocide in Darfur, apart from the longest civil war on the African continent. Sudan's December Revolution really um, caught the world's attention as one of the most outstanding, largely nonviolent uh, movement in, in recent decades. Um, it provided images that I thought were very unforgettable. Many in the world will um, remember the image of Ala Salah, the young Sudanese woman who mounted a car, uh, raised her hand, uh, dressed in a traditional Sudanese tobe. The one image that, uh, for me, that remained uh, in my mind of that era really was April 6th. A few days before the removal of al-Bashir was to see the amount of protesters uh, in front of the army headquarters. I thought that was a, a game changer. To me, that signaled that the end um, of, of, of the government was near. <laughs> During this transitional period um, after the revolution of, of 2019, I think uh, you can look at it and see this kind of Game of Thrones-like situation between two components of the military establishment. They then, you know, turned against each other. And that's what we saw in April 2023. Fighter jets circling overhead, firing missiles. Gunfire interrupting a live television broadcast. The two main belligerents, as we like to call them, are Hemeti, who's the head of the Rapid Support Forces, and Burhan, who's the head of the Sudanese Armed Forces. Both Hemeti and Burhan worked together in 2021 to overthrow the Transitional Council and declare that they were protecting the revolution. Of course they were not. It was about returning Sudan to a military autocratic regime. Once the two generals overthrew the, the civilian-led government, then it became, well, who's going to be the top dog? The rapid support forces that are this irregular paramilitary militia, essentially, that came out of the Janjaweed, the Janjaweed, which roughly translates to devils on horseback, were responsible for the genocide in Darfur that happened 20 years ago. In some ways, the easy story is to say that it is a tale of two generals or a tale of two belligerents. I myself use that framing sometimes because it felt like a way to quickly talk about what was going on. But of course, that's, that's only the superficial story. The real story is about a challenge that Sudan has faced over the, the decades since independence. And that is, how do you govern a country like Sudan without being a general? People have lots of different ideas for why Sudan doesn't get the attention internationally that other conflicts do. Part of it is because it's in Africa. And, and honestly, it is the fact that in the international media, 
stories of conflict in Africa aren't seen as that interesting. They're seen as part of the course. Another reason I think really does contribute to the lack of international media is the challenge for journalists on the ground. In 2022, there was about 1,000, 1,100 journalists working in Sudan. And this was a great moment, actually, because under the Bashir uh, regime, journalists were really, really suppressed. A recent report that came out of a, a UNESCO-supported um, survey said that about 90% of those journalists are unemployed now. The displacement of Sudanese that has come with the, the war uh, includes, of course, journalists and their families. According to a recent report by Reporters Without Borders, uh, 26 newspapers have stopped production, 10 radio stations have stopped. The news coming out of, of Sudan by Sudanese journalists has taken a hit. And that includes journalists who normally work with international media outlets, ground producers, fixers, translators, freelancers. But there are, of course, some new Sudanese uh, news outlets that I think that are still doing some good work. Radio Dabanga has become really an important uh, source of information. Sudan Tribune. Of course, these are news outlets that have um, bases outside of Sudan. So I think that the, the role uh, of the, uh, the diaspora does play an important role um, in covering um, uh, Sudan. There's quite a lot of pressure on those particular journalists to communicate what is happening to the world, especially those who are reporting in English. I mean, there's, there's the case of Yusril Baghir, who was doing a report on displaced people in Port Sudan, who ended up seeing one of her relatives in the, in the crowd. And as the crowd parts, it really sums up the challenge for journalists in Sudan trying also to report to the rest of the world. It's not just a, a distanced thing, it's not just a theoretical story. As we enter 2024, um, we, we're starting to see a trickling of uh, interest in, in Sudan again. Trying to keep attention to what is happening in Sudan is something that's important, especially that many of us think that as bad as the situation is in Sudan, it still can get worse. It is moving into a situation where Sudan could easily become what Somalia and Afghanistan were in the 90s. Um, a complete collapse of the state. And I think that would just simply be a disastrous situation. I spend a lot of my time feeling like I'm in two selves. There's a self that lives in London, that is physically safe, that has coffee with my husband in the morning. And there's the self that is in the conflict, that is watching the news, that is seeing the images of you know babies dying in orphanages left alone because nobody's there to save them, of women that describe awful abuses that have been visited on their bodies and also feeling this pressure to really do something about it because that responsibility is real and I think there is some sense whether it's diaspora saviorism mentality whether it's you know the idea that that we want to be able to just fix it but you have to be able to just focus on what is within your control who are the individual people you, you can help who are, what are the individual stories you can share that will that will move the needle if all it is today is sending a message to every single one of your family and checking that they're alive that's important too 
that has a place too. In closing, frequent viewers of our program will have noted that that piece on Sudan and our previous mention of the situation in Ecuador are the first stories we have done since October 7th that have not been about Israel's war on Gaza. And we still have some more catching up to do on developments in other countries and regions, stories rich in media angles, the kind that we've covered in the more than 15 years of doing this show. That is not to say, though, that we're turning our back on the Gaza story. We'll stay on it, from the court case in The Hague to the devastation on the ground and all of the geopolitical aspects. We're not moving on, just trying to keep up with the rest of the world. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.